Welcome everyone to the State of the Universe episode 83. This is a big one for us because we have, in my eyes, one of the pioneers of sort of online science communication. The great Dr. Ethan Siegel, I've, who I've wanted to get on the show for a long time, but serendipity stepped in and uh, I, was, I was giving a presentation at a conference, which nowadays just means you sit at your table, your kitchen table, you put a quarter zip on the top, and you wear basketball shorts on the bottom that you haven't changed out of for 18 months. And in my case, you talk about pulsars. And that's what I did. Ethan Siegel happened to be listening. I asked him if he wanted to come on. It was serendipity. He just showed up at my doorstep. My proverbial kitchen table he was sitting at when I needed him to be. And so we had a great conversation. He started the It Starts With a Bang blog in 2008. And... That blog has since grown to be an absolute massive scientific communication repository with thousands of articles. Most, most notably, you can see them on Forbes nowadays. Dozens of podcasts. He, he hosts a monthly podcast. It starts with a bang. Two books. I mean everything. Any way you can communicate science, Ethan has done it. And I have him on today because he has found himself in an interesting position lately in the scientific community, defending the science behind Oumuamua. Oumuamua, if you haven't heard about it, is this object that has captured the minds and hearts of many people. And for good reason. It's the first interstellar object that we've ever seen enter our solar system. What does that mean? It means it is the first object that did not originate in our solar system that seems to be meandering through, passing through on its way somewhere else. And naturally, this has spurred up a ton of speculation from scientists and non-scientists alike that maybe this could be aliens of all things. But before we move on, let me tell you what there's no speculation about. There's no speculation about you needing CBD oils in your life, whether it's to take the pain off from staring at your screen all day and your neck's broken like mine is, or whether it's to get better sleep. Whatever your purpose is, CBD oils will help you live a better life. Go to premiumjane.com, use code name universe for, for 20% off anything you want. Bath bombs, they got gummies, just regular CBD. My, love, my wife loves the citrus CBD oil that Premium Jane makes. She takes it before bed and it knocks her out. She says it's the best sleep she's ever gotten. Best sleep doesn't wake up, no tossing and turning, just relaxing. It doesn't get you high, it's not weed, it's just overall good stuff. So premiumjane.com, use code name universe, Check it out, support the show, and help us out. All right, now, Ethan has found himself in the position where he has to defend the scientific consensus, which shouldn't surprise you, is not the conclusion of aliens. And so we talk at length about what a muamua is, what we know about it, and why it's likely not aliens. But that discussion requires a lot of nuance because the people saying that it's aliens, most notably Avi Loeb, inside of the community himself, who you've maybe seen on other shows, he's been on Joe Rogan, he's been on Brian Keating's show. So you may have seen Avi Loeb out there telling you that Oumuamua is aliens and this and that, and in the process saying that the scientific community is, is closed-minded and doesn't want to think about aliens being a, a possibility and doesn't want Oumuamua to be aliens and, and all of this stuff. And, and then the podcast takes a turn towards discussing those ideas. Are we suffering from some confirmation bias? Are we all in, in a cohesive unit denying that aliens exist because we, we can't possibly imagine that to be the truth? It's an, it's an important discussion and it's kind of a continuation of the one I had with Brian Keating recently. 
And so I, I think it's an enlightening, an enlightening conversation about the way that science works today. I think it's an enlightening conversation about getting to scientific truth and the hurdles that stand in the way of scientific truth. And Ethan is a great uh, liaison to, to show us the ropes, if you will. And so with that being said, check out his stuff. It starts with a bang. All of the, all of the links will be in the description. Please rate and review the show five stars on Apple Pods. You already know what to do. You already know. You don't have to leave a thoughtful review. You don't have to say Brendan's, uh, Brendan's beautiful, or you don't have to say Brendan is smart. You don't have to say Brendan is amazing. You don't have to. You don't have to say Brendan deserves my money. You don't have to say all these things that are true because we already know these things. Instead, all you have to do is type, "This is a grade A podcast," which everyone else has done. Go on Apple Podcasts, look at the reviews. Grade A. It's easy. If this podcast went to Harvard, 4.0. If this podcast went to any university in the United States of America, 4.0. Perfect A's, grade A podcast. It's what it is. And it's never going to not be that, okay? It's a grade A podcast through and through. It is what it is. So please do that. Support the show on Patreon, PayPal. You know what to do. I've done everything you can do. You know, this is all trial and error. <laughs> any mistake that can be made, it has been made here on the State of the Universe. Um, so I think we've made so many mistakes at this point, though that we don't make them very often anymore. So hopefully this one goes off without a hitch. Uh, it's good to have you here, though, Ethan. Is well, thanks. It's good to be here. You know, I think that anytime you get the opportunity to say, look, okay, we're going to talk about science and let's be careful and make sure we're getting it right and make sure we're not misrepresenting either the science at play or our understanding of all the issues surrounding it. Like, let's be careful. Let's get it right. I, I really appreciate it. And I always jump at the opportunity to say, let's, let's get the most correct information out there that humans are possibly capable of obtaining with our current technology. And let's, let's tell everyone we can about what we know and how we know it without like the hype, the PR, the, yeah. No, a lot of people are saying a lot of things. Let's cut through that and let's look at what the science says. How can you ask for better than that? I agree. And uh, that, that's the goal of the show. The goal of the show is to, uh, you know, get people like you um, and people at the forefront of any given field and get them to explain um, where the limitations of knowledge are, because that that's an important thing to um, to tell people, because if you don't tell them that, um, then frankly, you allow all sorts of crazy ideas to perpetuate through society. So that's one of the, the things I want to talk to you about. And we'll get to that. But I want to start with something because I looked at the last five articles you've written on Forbes. With It starts with a bang. Sure. And uh, which is a great platform. We'll do a ton of advertising for it and get people to go read it. I don't think you need my advertising. The, you get a ton of ton of reads on a lot of the, those articles. So um, you're doing quite well for yourself without me. Uh, with that being said, though, I looked at the last five articles and they covered cosmology, Oumuamua, exoplanets, string theory, and atmospheric effects of thunderstorms. So this is very perplexing to me. Not perplexing, actually, just interesting. Because I, I have a lot of people on the show, and one of the things I routinely talk about is this concept of having a big question. And last month I had Daniel Whiteson on the show and mm -hmm. talked to him about a big question. And he's like a cosmologist type. And what I find a lot is that people who are in who are doing cosmology, they tend to have a very big question. They want to know the fundamental aspects of the beginning of our universe. But some mm -hmm. people I find, and I would put myself in this bubble, 
do not necessarily have a big question, so to speak. I do not wake up in the morning and think, I really want to understand the beginning of the universe. I more or less wake up and I say, I'm really interested in solving a problem. Let me go work with a cool group of people to solve that problem. And so I wonder, I see like the the variety of articles you write and the variety of science you're interested in. And I wonder if there is a big question in your head or if you are like me and you say, I love science. I love the endeavor. I love working with people. I love understanding this stuff. I don't want to answer this overarching question before I die. I just want to understand the human extent of our knowledge about the universe. So to you, is there a big question there or are you just, do you just love this stuff? I mean, you, you asked me an either or question like it's not yes to both of them. Right, um, of course. And it's kind of funny right. because right. like we, it is kind of interesting to see how our experiences, our personal experiences that we have about what internally motivates us and what motivates the people around us influences how we look at the world. The exact mm -hmm. question that you're like looking at, you know, okay, I see other people doing this and this is how I approach things and I see it's different. Uh, so I wonder about like categorizing it this is very similar to what i remember doing myself when i was a grad student when i was a grad student i was like you know okay why did i go to grad school why what was it that motivated me that said go to grad school and for me it was kind of like this this big motivating thing inside of me because uh when I was fresh out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I went and became a high school teacher. I'm teaching high school physics and physical science in Los Angeles. And uh, while I'm doing it, I sort of realized like, yeah, this is okay, but it's not what I want to keep doing. What is it that I, I want to do? Um, and so I start asking myself like, okay, look, you this is what you're doing, this is what you know, but really you want to know this stuff deeper than you know it. And what is that stuff you want to know? And like you say, when you get into cosmology, it's sort of like, you know, for me, it, it was like cosmology, I kind of knew was a science, but I didn't really know, like, how far it had come and what it was all about. Like I had taken cosmology courses as an undergrad right. and I had taken a bunch of theoretical astrophysics. Um, but when I was looking at it, I was like, you know, if I could go back and learn anything that there was to learn, what would I do? I would learn what the universe is, how it got to be this way, where it came from and what its ultimate fate is. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy when I started researching this a little more deeply to learn this is not philosophy, this is not theology, this is not poetry. These questions are scientific questions that we have started beginning in the 20th century to come up with scientific answers to. And research is still ongoing, but you can study this too. It's a branch of theoretical astrophysics known as cosmology, and you can go to grad school in it. You can get your PhD in it. So for me, I had a big, uh, I wouldn't say an advantage necessarily, but there was a a differentiator between me and the other grad students in the department because I noticed that I was one of maybe 10% of new grad students who was coming into the program who knew exactly what they wanted to do, exactly what they wanted to study, exactly who they wanted to research with, and who they wanted their advisor to be. Um, that I felt gave me, I won't say an advantage again, but it meant that I could say, here's what I want to start doing. I'm right. going to hit the ground running, prepping myself to do that. And for me, 
I did. I had that big internal motivating factor of this is what I want to know. I can't imagine going through life without knowing this now that I know it exists. And I have to learn all the things there are to learn so that I can competently understand this. So I want to know where the elements came from. I better know how atoms form. I better know how nuclear reactions work. I better know, you know, nuclear and particle physics to this level of precision. I want to know, um, how the Big Bang came to be and how cosmic inflation set that up and what the arguments for that are and why that's the conclusion. So you better dive in and learn field theory and learn relativity and learn all of these things that you need to learn to understand the dynamics of this. And guess what? Charged particles play an important role. So you better get really good at electromagnetism, classical and quantum versions. And, you know, all of these things start coming in and you're like, you know, oh, uh, I see that I have to learn a lot of different branches of physics to be good at what I want to be good at. Uh, but my advisor, when I was talking to him about it, uh, this is Jim Fry from the University of Florida. I really, really enjoyed uh, my time working alongside him. It's probably some of the most formative uh, times I had in my physics career. Um, and I'm really grateful for all the time and attention that he was able to put into me, that he chose to put into me when mm -hmm. I was when I was coming up. And uh, his mindset on it was very different than mine. For him, he said, you know, is that when I was talking to my advisor about why he was doing this and what kept him doing it, he said to me that when he was a grad student and he started working in the field, on the problems he was working on, he realized how much he loved it. And he had that feeling inside that said to him, you know, as long as someone will pay me to do this sort of work, this is the sort of work I want to do every day for as long as someone will pay me to do it. And that to me, it was a totally different mindset, but it was just an equally valid mindset as mine to say, like, there is this thing I want to learn, I want to study, I want to know about, and something inside me is saying my life will be incomplete if I don't do it. But also, it's just as valid to say, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to work on, I really enjoy the act of doing it, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't to say that that Jim didn't have his own, like, I'm motivated, I want to know this, I want to understand this. And it isn't to say I didn't have the, I really do enjoy working on this, I really love the day-to-day -day stuff of it. But but when you looked at what was the primary motivator, uh, we each had this different one inside of us. And I'm kind of curious, like, if that sort of dichotomy, the way you experience it, uh, if what I'm saying you about my experience, if that doesn't ring a bell or sound sort of familiar, even though it's not the same dichotomy. Yeah, no, it it definitely sounds familiar. And, um, you know, my own experience, I've worked in such a vast number of labs from my, you know, infancy in this field to now. And I have a tough time finding a problem I don't like solving. And ah. I have met... Many people on the show, um, the most recent one that comes to mind is uh, Maura, Maura McLaughlin, who was the, uh, the chair of Nanograv for a few years before they, they did their annual cycling, um, which is a cool thing. All collaboration should do it. Don't keep the same personnel at the head forever. You need a change of pace every now and again. Um, anyway, so she had said, I asked her a similar question to this. 
And she and I asked her, like, would could you see yourself working on some biological problem? Like, would that be fun to you? And she said that she probably could. She could probably be doing that just as much as she could be working on some astrophysical problem because um, there really does seem to be. Now, I think there is overlap. I think there is very much the case where people find their big question as they work through many questions. I think that happens. I think there are some people in your shoes who say or who know coming into something like graduate school, obviously life experiences got you there, but you know, like, you know, this is the thing I want to work on. This is what I want to pursue. These are my questions. I need to know all this information. Those that exists, certainly. And I, but I also think that there exists a, a subset of scientists who say, eh, I could do chemistry. I could do biology. I could do physics. I could do astronomy. I could do really anything. Put me around cool people working on cool problems and, and you know, count me in. So um, it, it, this is something that I've sort of developed over the course of doing the show and talking to so many people. Um, because it does, there does seem to be, a, I guess, a duality of the two types of scientists. And of course, there's so much overlap. It's like a Venn diagram and a big one. Yeah, I'm not putting anyone in boxes, of course, but uh, it, it is an interesting thing that I've noticed. And I was curious, based on the depth you go in on so many topics, where you found yourself in that in that duality. I mean, for me, I. Yeah. I mean, if I were to think about it in those terms, I'm definitely in the overlap region of that Venn diagram mm -hmm. where um, I think about it in terms of, OK, look, we we get bombarded from society by saying like, OK, look, you can either be a jack of all trades or a master of one. Right. And. I, I sort of look at that as like, okay, you can choose to either go narrow and specialized with your education or broad and maybe not not as deep. Mm -hmm. um, but I also look at what I've done with my own life and I think, but but I've done both, right. maybe not as deep in mm -hmm. as many areas as some of the people who exclusively do that. Right. But but also, like you said, uh, I do have experience in a number of different things. Like, yes, I, I specialized in theoretical cosmology, but that isn't to say that I never worked in experimental particle physics. That isn't to say that I never, um, you know, did any observational cosmology projects or wrote papers on that. That isn't to say that I didn't, uh, you know, learn about quantum field theory and string theory and extra dimensions and maybe even write papers on that too. Um, so I would say I am interested in lots of different things and I do see the opportunity where if my life had gone in different directions, I could have been a scientist in a number of different fields and could have been relatively happy there. But also when I look back at my own life and say, you know, Ethan, you picked the science you wanted to study the most, and that wasn't even enough for you to keep you in the field, that right. you you decided to say, yeah, look, I, I know this, and I love this, and I'm going to stay active in it, but I'm not going to stay active in it in the traditional way where I'm going to keep writing papers, keep doing research, get a permanent university position, and teach there forever and ever. Um like I, I'm one of the few people I know who I turned down the offer of a tenure track position. I'm one of the few people I know who had a job at a respected college and was like, no, 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 no. 
like I'm going to leave this and try and become self-employed as a science writer on my own. Like that's not really a common path that people right. take. Um, but, you know, but those same questions, they still motivate me. I still wonder about the nature of dark matter and dark energy. I still wonder about inflation and the origin of our universe. I still wonder about dark energy, its true nature, and what that means for the fate of the universe. There are still these big questions that motivate me and these interesting new things that weren't really questions in the field when I was coming up, like the current controversy over the Hubble constant or mm -hmm. the existence of all of these different exoplanets that aren't just these hot Jupiters that, right. that you can detect with the radial velocity method. Mm -hmm. um, like there's, there's a whole lot that keeps developing. And I think that um, it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to say, hey, go learn about all of these fields. I remember one year uh, I was anticipating the Nobel Prize and I was expecting it to be for something and I guessed wrong. Mm -hmm. I thought I knew what the Nobel Prize in Physics was going to be awarded for. And then I was surprised when the announcement came in and I was like, OK, let's see. The Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of the blue LED light. What do I need to learn to write about this and explain it to other people? Because solid state physics is probably the one of the areas of physics that I know the least about, but I know I know the least about it relative to that. Like you've previously, like my understanding of solid state physics was basically like, okay, well, I know statistical mechanics. I know all about like thinking in phase space in terms of probability. And I know the Druda model, which is, you know, basically if you have a particle that's traveling through a medium how often is it going to hit the other stuff? And you just say, oh, well, the collision rate goes as the number density of particles times the cross section of the particle times the speed that you move through it. You will be surprised taking that simple equation that collision rate goes as number density times cross section times velocity. Mm -hmm. You will be surprised at how far that gets you in solid state physics and also in in lots of aspects of physics where you're right. passing through a medium and you're going to hit stuff like mm -hmm. this is this is actually very very good it's a very good approach to things so anyway yeah. um i went through it and i was like oh like i have to go learn a bunch of background on this um which is exciting because it's an opportunity to read it's an opportunity to learn and then once you get to learn that you know you have to be good at rating yourself at how competent am i at this mm -hmm. and then you have to take that big step that I love taking, which is maybe how I know I made a good choice for myself with what I'm doing now is, okay, how do I take this, which I went and I made it so that I could teach myself enough to understand the physics. How can I translate this from physics into English for someone who doesn't already know the physics that I know? And that that's an exciting challenge for me that I haven't gotten tired of yet is that because this was something else that I ran into when I was in grad school is I, I realized like I have these big questions. I want to know the answers to these. And look, like I, I went and became an expert in this. There's probably only a few thousand people in the world. If that, it might only be a few hundred or a few dozen if I go down to my subfield. 
Um, there are only a few people in the world who know this this well. I can't imagine there are only a few people who have the same big questions that I mm -hmm. do. So why should I have to go to grad school for five years or so to get my PhD in this to learn enough to know these answers? Why can't everyone have this accessible to them? This is, it, it seems like there would be demand for that. And so that was, that was one of the motivating factors I had in why I should do this, why I should try to create this yeah. new type of career for myself. It, that's a huge lesson for people though. Like people listen, I, you know, I, our audience is filled with people who are not scientists, who are not physicists. And that's a, this is a huge I guess, lesson for them that, that that avenue exists. I mean, in the age of the internet where all of the information is laid out for you um, for free, you could become an expert, so to speak, and we can use that term differently. Um, you can become, you know, very intelligent on a particular topic that you don't have any formal education in uh, with persistence. So, I mean, that lesson is embedded in what you're saying, and I think it's an important lesson to to explicitly say. I think so, but I'll add a caveat to that, is when you're not an expert, you need to be able to go to someone who is an expert right. yes. and make sure that you have understood not your field correctly, because I have seen all sorts of instances where people who are not experts in my field write about my field and misrepresent it, not maliciously, but just, you know, because they don't have the appropriate background. And I want to make sure for myself that I don't fall into that same pitfall. So right. for example, over the last year, uh, we've had the COVID-19 pandemic and I go to my friends who are virologists, disease ecologists, PhD biologists, um, and if I want to write about COVID-19, if I want to write about public health messaging, if I want to write about like things that are important for the general public to know about accurately, mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I am getting all of my facts right, that I am communicating things correctly, that I am not misrepresenting either the disease, the treatment, or the field. Uh, so it's very important to do that. I will often do this when I'm writing in depth on a topic, even in astrophysics, that my specialty isn't in, is I will go to someone who does specialize in that and make sure I'm getting it right. And even then, I don't always get it right because sometimes they're mistaken, but it's right. okay. You're allowed to make mistakes. What mm -hmm. you're not allowed to do, at least this is a rule I've set for myself, what you're not allowed to do is knowingly or even ignorantly misrepresenting what we already know. That, right. that to me is the big sin. If we and we as the human species has learned a scientific truth or a scientific fact or have established something as a robust conclusion, it is important that I represent this is what we know, here's how we know it, and this way, you know, at least this correct information is getting out there. I think that's that's extremely important to do, particularly in what you what you've called the internet age, where where anyone can go online and find this information. You want to make sure as a writer that you are 
giving people factually correct, 100% factually correct information. And you also want to make sure that you're giving it to them in a way that they can understand it, digest it, and if they are so inclined, even explain it to others. Yeah. No, I agree. What's that? What's that effect? Is that called the? Is it called the Dunning Kruger effect? Is that the right word? Is that the word? So Dunning Kruger is where you doubt your own expertise when you have it, and you believe right. yourself to have expertise when you don't. Yes. So that's the that's that's like kind of the the I guess the the uh, the title of the thesis that that you just gave in in speech is. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who want to gain expertise in something and think that they have gone, gained expertise in something when, in fact, um, they just know very little about that something. Uh, but, but you know, on this topic, let's kind of switch into something that this effect might be uh, very popular in the media right now, and that's Oumuamua. Am I saying that right? Uh, you are saying it right. Umuamua. It is the Hawaiian word for a messenger from the distant past. Um, right. Okay. So let's. Focus and it's on also that. sure. Should we should we just dive into what it is or what's going on with it in the media? Yeah. So I, I think we can um, avoid the the media speculation to start and and let's just talk about what we know about it. What's odd about it? Why is it so ripe for? um media hype uh, so so let's kind of you know i i think that there's a couple aspects of it that make it kind of well not kind of incredibly interesting um and so let, let's dive into that so what is it let's start very very i guess broadly sure so uh let's let's start with what it is and how it was discovered right so one of the most wonderful observatories that we have that you've probably never heard of if you're just a casual listener of this because most people haven't heard of this is what's called the pan stars observatory this mm -hmm. is a relatively small telescope uh smaller smaller than my arms are from end to end its primary mirror is pretty small so but what it does is it's an incredibly wide field telescope and it's located on the summit of Maui on Haleakala which is uh not as high as the summit of Mauna Kea but mm -hmm. also is not as uh full of telescopes or as uh full of uh controversy right now right. um the summit of Mauna Kea um as many of you know is uh is the subject of a contentious issue between indigenous people who want to have sovereignty over their land and how it's used and astronomers who have been building telescopes and using them at the summit um anyway it's a complicated issue that yeah. uh is at the intersection of science and culture and sovereignty and political rights and mm -hmm. a whole lot of yeah complicated social issues yeah I've uh, had a, maui I, doesn't have that yeah i did an entire episode on that actually that controversy where where it comes from, where it stems from, I forget who I recorded it with. Um, but that we had a whole episode on on sort of that uh, that. So go check that out. You can find it probably search Monica people uh, listening. But anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, at Haleakala, there's this telescope, and what it does is it surveys all of the sky that it can see, which is three quarters of the entire Earth's sky. If you remember like what a degree is that you break up a circle into 360 degrees and you were to take a square degree, mm -hmm. right? A little square degree and 
cover the sky in square degrees. Uh, there are about 40,000 square degrees in the whole sky. And the Pan-STARRS telescope gets about 30,000 square degrees in its field of view, mm -hmm. uh, which it takes it, I believe, a little over a night. I think it's about a night and a half to do the whole sky. And it just does the whole sky over and over and over and over and over, yeah. which is great for doing things like finding transient events, things that brighten or dim, finding variable objects, things that change over time, mm -hmm. and also finding objects that move through the sky which means it's excellent at finding these you know objects in our solar system we haven't found before asteroids comets and in the case of Oumuamua which is the very first one an object that must have originated from outside our solar system every once in a while you can imagine oh yeah we've got these solar systems right and they're full of objects, asteroids, comets, Oort cloud objects, right? As well as like planets and planetesimals and moons and all that stuff. And over time, objects are going to gravitationally interact with each other. Some of them will get perturbed. Some of them might hit one of the planets. Some of them might go into the sun. But a large fraction of them are going to get ejected over time. We've seen this happen in our own solar system where comets and asteroids and whatnot have been kicked by one of the gas giant planets and they get ejected from the solar system. Oumuamua, when it came in, was coming in at a speed and an angle that we had never seen before. All the objects that have ever been a part of our solar system have they only get a kick of up to a few kilometers a second, with the one exception of an object that was kicked by Jupiter. All the objects that have ever been kicked out of our solar system, when we've observed them leaving the solar system, they leave the sun by time they're on their way out. They leave the sun at a speed that's less than one kilometer per second. We found Oumuamua when it was pretty close to Earth. It had clearly made its closest approach to the sun. It even went interior to the orbit of Mercury. Mm -hmm. When it's on its way out, it was leaving the sun at 26 kilometers per second. It was clearly not on a trajectory where it would have encountered any of the gas giant planets. So the only conclusion is this is an object on a very hyperbolic orbit that must have originated from outside of our solar system, been a temporary interloper, and then was on its way out. Now, Oumuamua was small. It was only about 100 to 300 meters along its longest axis, which mm -hmm. is pretty small. Right. It was very depleted, which is to say we didn't detect volatiles being emitted from it. Um, and What's interesting is we tracked its orbit as best as we could with the tools we have. It exhibited a very small additional acceleration in addition to the one caused by gravity. Now, this is consistent with off-gassing that we've seen for comets. This is consistent with uneven heating that we've seen for spacecraft like the Pioneer spacecraft. Um, but it's sort of uh, all points to this picture that what this object is, is the first object ever discovered of a new category of an object that's been traveling through interstellar space that's been weathered by the intergalactic medium or intragalactic medium that it mm -hmm. travels through and that has 
properties, size, temperature, color, reflectivity that are consistent with objects that we think should be out there, but that we've never seen before. Uh, so it, for instance, had a 3.6 hour uh, big brightness variation, and that leads to interesting questions. Why? Is it is it maybe an elongated triaxial ellipsoid where the longest axis and the shortest axis are very different dimensions from one another? Is it like Saturn's moon Iapetus, where one side is bright and reflective and the other side is dark and absorptive. Uh, we don't have good enough data on it because it's small and distant and we only got to observe it for a short period of time to let us know. Uh, but this is very interesting because it's the very first in a discovery of a population of objects that up until 2017 was only theoretical. And theoretically, there should be a lot of them. There could be billions or even trillions of these types of objects for every star in the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, so let's uh, let's hone in on some of these uh, these topics and and sort of uh, break down um, in more detail what we know about them. So so the orbit is hyperbolic. We know that it's it's has come in from somewhere outside of the, as you mentioned outside of the solar system. Um, it has it has you know gone on this hyperbolic orbit about the sun. It's now on its way out of the solar system. Um, and its brightness is something that has spurred a lot of discussion because, as you said, it, it does change and dim uh, its brightness by, I think, a factor of 10. Is that correct? Uh, it's on the order of 10. I don't yeah. remember the exact number, but it's on the order of 10. It's it's a big change in brightness. Like I said, uh, Iapetus is a good analogy yep. or an object that's tumbling like, oh, I know, like... Hang on, if I can stop throwing things all over my office. <laughs> no worries. Like an eraser for a board, for a whiteboard or a blackboard, if you've ever mm -hmm. taken an eraser and tried to throw it up, you'll notice that it tumbles. It doesn't just rotate like this. It will tumble as it right. rotates. It will rotate irregularly. Mm -hmm. That is what... Umuamua could be. It could either be like a multi-toned object where one side is darker and one side is lighter, or it could be an object that has an unusually elongated shape. And that's possible because you can imagine, oh, if I see this object and its long axis is facing me, I see a lot of it. It could be reflecting a lot of light. And if I see it where it's only the shortest axis is facing me, then, mm -hmm. oh, look, it could be like only a tiny amount of light is getting reflected towards me. So that could explain it also. Uh, we don't know which of these explanations is most likely or if it's something else entirely because we don't have good enough data. The closest we observed this object was when it was at a distance of about 23 million kilometers. Yeah. And like I said, this object is about 100 to 300 meters log yes now even in something like the hubble space telescope you're seeing one pixel from this object right. that's it yes yeah and now we know that objects uh you know the the dimensions of this object lead to a lot of media hype because you have something that in the minds of of people who are not experts in planetary science for example might think wow that is a, 
and it, you know everything we see around us the earth the moon etc it's spherical um but i guess the missing piece in a lot of this is that we as you mentioned um with some of the moons of saturn and some of the the asteroids some of the oort cloud objects if it's not big enough to sort of um what is that called gravitational differentiation is that the actual term given to an object that's sphere that makes itself a spheroid uh, I believe you're looking for hydrostatic equilibrium. An object in a hydrostatic equilibrium will pull itself into a spheroidal shape. The problem is, in order to reach that, even if you're made out of something like ices, whether you're yes. made out of something like ices or rocks, you need to be about 200 kilometers in diameter to be right. big enough and massive enough to have gravity do that. Most asteroids, Kuiper Belt objects, uh, Oort cloud objects are not big or massive enough to do that. Right. And so they come out shaped more like what I like to call potatoes. Yes. That in general, it's a three-dimensional shape. It could be irregular. Um, and that's how it happens. Now, that is when they are created. They come out like potatoes. We've never seen until Umumua what happens when you've been a potato, you, you were born a potato, mm -hmm. and now you've been traveling through the interstellar medium, getting bombarded by particles, according to the Druda model, hey, hey, look at that, where it weathers you. What's going to happen? Well, the smart money says you're probably going to get weathered the same way a rock in the ocean or at the bottom of a riverbed gets weathered, where, you know, okay, you won't have that force of gravity pulling it down but you will see it get smoothed out. You will see it get weathered down unevenly in different directions where the shortest initial direction gets weathered more and the longest original direction stays longer. Mm -hmm. So that's what we theoretically expect to happen for a, a modestly sized object like football field sized object that's traveling through the universe uh, through the galaxy, through the intergalactic medium, and then it happens to pass through the solar system, mm -hmm. and we see it during that particular during that particularly interesting time. The fact is, like everyone who works in the field, I wish we had better data on Oumuamua, because right. I wish we had 30 meter class telescopes on Earth. I wish we had the James Webb Space Telescope or Louvoir or something like that, that already existed so we could just observe this with better tools and better technology. But we only have the data we have. And uh, I feel like this discussion is leading towards the speculation that maybe Oumuamua is not a normal rock-like object like this. And I do want to say what I consider to be uh, like the scientist's commandment when it comes to speculation mm -hmm. is, look, speculating about what it could be is fine, especially in the scientific literature. That's where we do most of, of our course. speculations. Yeah. But I feel it's very irresponsible to advance unsubstantiated speculations to the general public because of our own biases that we have about what we would like to exist yeah i know so i agree I, with you a thousand percent um i so in in um bringing up this evidence my my point is not to push some alien theory i hope i'm not uh giving you that uh 
that uh, vibe, Ethan. I hope that's not the case. No, no, no. I don't. Um, I don't think you are. But I, I'm sure that you know you've seen the speculation around Umumua, and I imagine many of your listeners have seen the speculation around yes. Umumua. And I did want to tell them this: what I consider a commandment, yes, which is thou shalt not conclude aliens from inadequate data. Let's all take a minute to marvel at that commandment. I think it's a great one. And while we're marveling, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Check out a few of our partner podcasts. And when I say partner, what I mean is we all love science, okay? And if you are listening to this at 43 minutes deep or however long this is going to be put, who knows? You might love science too. I hope you do or you're just boring yourself with the details. Now, you should check out why This Universe with the great Dr. Dan Hooper and Shalma Wexman. It's an excellent science podcast that, as I've described before, is a pop-sci book wrapped into a podcast. You should also check out Into the Impossible with the great Dr. Brian Keating, a friend of the show. That is one of the top conversationalist science podcasts, much like mine, in the world today. And then, can't forget, Jorge and Daniel explain the universe with the great uh, Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson. With that being said, enough listening to me talk. Let's get back into the episode, but go give those shows a shot. I have some people on this show who've reached out to me who I know have heard about those shows through this show and vice versa. And so we are cross-pollinating, and I hope that you can uh, be a little worker bee in that um, in that process and go cross-pollinate. So I think you'll love those shows if you love this show. Back to the episode. You yes. cannot say... I don't have the data to know what's going on here, and therefore, let's think about aliens. Yes, I mean, this is a, th- this is a common commandment, or, or rather, scientists are even known to break this commandment. And, and I think you have a ton of people in the field saying that Avi Loeb, the Harvard professor, um, which is such an interesting tagline that follows everything he's ever done or will do, um, because that... It gives some. It's funny how. Uh, what do you think of when you hear that? When you hear a Harvard professor, do you think, oh, here's someone pulling out all their credentials so that they will feel like, oh, like my words come with this weight because I'm at Harvard? Or yeah. do you feel like, you know, like there's something else going on here? I think that the. Uh, well, I th- I think that that u- term is used uh, by the media to to jar up maybe undeserving speculation in the general public because ideas in today's marketplace are unfortunately not measured by the amount of citations they get in the scientific literature, but they're they're measured by how many likes and retweets they can get on social media platforms. It's very dangerous for science that this is the case, but you can see it in uh in almost every. Uh, every field has like their sort of open question, uh, whether it be multiverses or, or whether it be a, a dark matter as black holes or, you know, whatever um, sort of I, I don't want to call it fringe because I don't want to compare those things to aliens, so to speak. Um, but you understand my point is that there are all of these uh, open questions and you routinely see uh, in sort of media or uh, popular science. Those so, sorts of terms, Harvard professor, Yale professor, um, used to give more credence to an idea than maybe it deserves. I think that's okay. So I have 
two comments on that. Yeah. Uh, I think you are being very unfair to blame the media for promoting it like this, because this type of promotion does not come from the media. This type of promotion comes from the professor at the university who is pushing these claims. I agree. To say, yeah. I am the Harvard professor, and I know this because up until I wrote my recent piece on Umumua and Avi Loeb took me off of his spam email list, I have been getting spammed from him since 2018, and not before, but since 2018, with him self-promoting his theories about Umumua yes. and how it's aliens and the likelihood of extraterrestrials and how his breakthrough Starshot light sale, which isn't even his, it's Phil Lubin's, but how this is... Uh, how this is an analogy for what we're likely seeing and we should look for this and we should take this seriously. Um, the problem when something like that crosses my radar is I have been around the block too many times to not see this for what it is, to mm -hmm. not see the same chicanery that they pull with Willie Soon, who is the famous uh, Coke uh, professor who's endowed at Harvard, the famous climate-denying solar physicist mm -hmm. who's there. Uh, this is a tactic that someone uses to promote themselves, to promote their work at the expense of legitimately dozens or even hundreds of good scientists who don't have the fortune to be a professor yeah. at this prestigious of an institution, uh, it's really a way for them to say, pay attention to me and what I say and not what other people are saying. And it is a dirty tactic. And by the way, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, as I, I'm keenly aware of talking to a, a junior person that maybe you don't know that Avi Loeb has been doing this with various claims about aliens for at least about a decade that he was claiming aliens can exist in the early uh, reionization era universe, that he was claiming aliens likely exist around white dwarf stars. And the person he wrote that with was like, yeah, like because they, they sometimes interview a co-author and you should mm -hmm. really look at what the co-author says. Like, I didn't even think there was enough substance in here to write a paper on this, but we did. And based on all the attention we're getting, uh, maybe it was a good idea after all. That attention comes because you have a self-promoter promoting their own work. That attention does not come because it organically sprang up around this work. This attention was courted. And this attention around Umuomua has been specifically courted by the person who stands to benefit the most from selling their book. Yeah, I, 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 don't, disagree. I, I don't disagree with that. I, I'm extremely cynical about this. And I'm fully aware that I am still trying to couch my words under this veneer of professionalism that I'm not being fully honest in telling you what a dastardly huckster we're dealing with here. Um, that this yeah. is this is nefarious mm -hmm. and this is demeaning to the field of astronomy that someone is claiming simultaneously to be a prestigious Harvard professor while they're at the same time talking about being an iconoclast and their ideas are not getting the attention they deserve because of groupthink. If anything, Avi Loeb has had a at least the last 15 years of his career, which is when I've been most active. Um, that he has 
uh, explicitly been courting this type of attention and, you know, use it. Look, he has a history of putting himself out there, and that's a good thing in the scientific literature, but that's not a good thing when it comes to advancing your own personal speculations that you are conflating with the best evidence that science tells us. Because mixing your speculation, even if it turns out to be right, with what we actually know, mixing them together and packaging up them up to the public yeah. in a way where you don't separate them out, I think that's extremely dangerous and disingenuous. Yeah, I no, I I agree with you. And so um, I... I listened to to Avi Loeb discuss this, and he says he says, okay, you have some object with this hyperbolic trajectory. It came into the solar system; it's now leaving. Um, this object is is apparently speeding up, and it's very thin, and it has an odd shape, and maybe it could be a light sail. And he says all these things, and then he says, therefore, it has to be a light sail made by some aliens um, out there who are I don't know passing through. Maybe they're dead. Maybe whatever. He talks. He comes up with a million reasons. For why um, the light sail is doing the things it does. And then you could come up with natural defenses, like saying, okay, let's assume the alien theory is real. Let's just assume it's real. Why is the light sail tumbling? You know, you could ask these natural questions. You shouldn't tumble a light sail unless they're thinking in some uh, 18th dimensional space that we don't quite understand. But all of that aside, the biggest problem with claiming aliens is that you come up with a theory, if you, that's, I'm using the, the non-technical version of the word, of course, um, that is unfalsifiable. And therefore, it's not actually scientific because you couldn't actually say that this thing, that you can somehow prove or disprove the alien hypothesis on the particular object of Oumuamua. It's gone. You're not getting to it with today's technology. You're not going to go scan it. You're not going to go take a photo of it. It's gone. And so it's very dangerous, I think, um, to push these ideas, you and I both agree that it's a very dangerous thing uh, for the scientific method in general to kind of push these ideas on a very uh, widespread. And I don't know much about the history of Avi Loeb. Um, I've heard his well, name. You can look into it if you yeah. want to uh, come away, uh, I guess, disappointed in yeah. uh, Harvard as an institution, perhaps, or in how gullible the media is that you know, someone like Avi Loeb can just write to them and they will uh, they will just eat it up because like, oh, a famous Harvard professor says this and what a what a good headline this is going to make. And, right. you know, why and, why yeah. isn't anyone listening to him? And, and that's why I, that's why I blame the media. Yeah, because I think if the media like I don't I shouldn't say I blame the media as if it's all of their fault. I, I, could, I agree with you a million percent that this is like. The media wouldn't have a story to cover if there wasn't a person pushing the story, of course. I agree. Um, but I do I do think that the the media could do their due diligence in doing what you do and saying, okay, let's get on someone who disagrees with this mindset, disagrees with this ide ideology, and explain to us why that is and give the reader a, a, a packaged presentation instead of pushing an alien hypothesis. But um, to, to sort of transition into something you mentioned, you mentioned that Avi Loeb is saying that the rest of the rest of the field is, you know, embarking on this groupthink to prove his ideas wrong. I think that that is patently absurd. Looking at the amount of SETI work that's actually done in this field, because when I listened to Avi Loeb, this is my interpretation. I did my due diligence. I tried to listen to Avi talk on multiple shows. He's been on Brian Keating's show. 
He's been on uh, Joe Rogan's show. He's been on multiple of these these big name podcasts. He's doing he's like been a million. Carols. He's been yes. on Alex Friedman's. He's- yes, he's done all of these shows, and um, I I think it was important to listen to what he's saying, and I'm fine with him thinking that aliens are a likely scenario because at the end of the day, you do have to. Science is all about measuring probabilities. I suppose there is a probability. I would never say there's no probability that it was an alien light sail. I think there's a probability. I don't think it's an overwhelming probability. I think if you do, if you actually look at the the amount of these types of objects that should exist and should be traveling through the solar system, as you mentioned. Right. I gave you an estimate about 10 yes. to the 25 objects like this in our galaxy. Yes. Naturally. The, yes. Then the probability is probably not in favor of aliens unless you think there are more aliens in the galaxy than there are uh you know natural interlopers that will be traveling by us or uh, or that they deliberately chose to target us right and uh and we happen to receive one of these things that arrived but you know somehow like a light sail it wasn't traveling at relativistic speeds it was traveling at 26 kilometers a second which right. is completely consistent with how fast other objects in the galaxy move relative to our sun at our location mm-hmm. um so again like here are the things is we have here's what the natural predictions offer do you have evidence strong evidence that this does not fit with natural objects if i were looking at the data alone uh aliens not only wouldn't be my first guess it probably wouldn't be my 20th guess correct as to what it might be it's fine that it is someone else's first guess but what you have to do if you want this to rise to the level of actual science is you have to be able to concretely say here's what a natural object would do here's what an artificial object would do here are the observations we can make to tell them apart and by the way, we can do this with current technology. Because like you said, Oumuamua is gone. But if this was an alien-like thing, mm-hmm. more of these objects are coming. We're going to see more of them. This isn't just like, oh, well, we just found the only one in the galaxy. That right. is like serendipitous crazy talk. Yes. And, and I don't mean to be demeaning to anyone with mental health issues. I have them myself, and I'm sorry for using the phrase crazy talk. But that is, uh, I say unscrupulous scientifically unsound reasoning uh but we've seen another interstellar interloper come in uh borisov in 2019 Mm -hmm. and we're likely going to find more of them especially as the lsst at vera rubin observatory comes online especially as you know we start surveying the sky at greater depths and more frequently, we're going to find more of these objects. We're going to find smaller ones, fainter ones, ones that only get farther from the sun and don't come very close. And we're going to start characterizing them in terms of population. What's their size, color, appearance, abundance? We're going to learn all this information. That's how we're actually going to learn something meaningful is from collecting more and better data. The important thing, and I can't stress this enough, is to not assume a fantastic explanation or a a speculative explanation for something where you don't have good enough data to tell different explanations apart. 
Yes, and if you look at the scientific literature on this particular object, it actually validates completely what you're saying, and I feel that it invalidates what Avi Loeb is saying. And that's because you can look at the, the scientific speculation on this in journals, and you can find many different explanations for the object that are not aliens. You can find many different explanations for the object um, that are trying to explain how an object like that would get to us in a variety of different ways, how it would look the way it looked in a variety of different ways, and all of those ways are natural processes. Um, I, I, Again, I don't mind that Avi Loeb thinks it's aliens. I don't mind if he wants to pursue that avenue. What I mind is how he says that the rest of the field is embarking on this groupthink trying to prove him wrong because I, I don't think that that is the case. I don't think that people are saying um, – I don't think that people are targeting the idea because he's the one pushing the idea. I think people are targeting the idea because it's – as we mentioned, the probability of it being right is small. Now, um, to, to get off of him and to get onto broader science – I I guess this is much of my feelings towards uh, the political climate of the day as well, is that you should not assume that everything he says is patently absurd and wrong. Some of the things he says, I believe, are actually based in some fundamental uh, real thing happening in science. When he says that people are embarking on this groupthink uh, crusade to take him out, I don't think – I think that's nonsense. I don't think that's happening. Um but I do think that there is aspects where groupthink affects scientists. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to point you to an example. I'm not going to say, oh, those quantum gravity people are doing groupthink, and that's a crazy idea, because I don't know that. And I'm not saying that I have an example of it happening. But I'm saying that groupthink is a thing that can happen in science. We've seen it in the past. We've seen it with the Michelson-Morley-type experiments. We've seen it with BICEP2. Groupthink can happen. Confirmation bias is real. And so I want to talk to you more about, about that in particular. Um, do you, and the reason I, I said the political climate is because I think, uh, I think that, you know, I think Andrew Yang says this, he says, uh, Donald Trump is not, uh, not the, the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. And I think that that is, uh, very real. I think if you, you know, you can try to assume everything wrong with America started in 2016 when Donald Trump became presidency, when Donald Trump became president. But I think it's, it's, a a lot harder problem to say, okay, there's been problems festering in this country for a very long time. Let's actually focus on the, let's assume he's a symptom and let's focus on that problem. Um, and I think that Avi Loeb is, is a long, I'm not saying he's Donald Trump, of course, uh, but I'm saying, I think that when he speaks, you should not disregard, or I'm not talking to you in particular, but people should not disregard um, every single thing he says because his overarching conclusion is wrong. I think that we should look at some of the things he says and, and ask, is there any truth to that? Is there, is there the possibility for confirmation bias and groupthink in this field? And um, I'm curious to get your opinion on it. I have a lot of opinions on it. Um, I will say that where I see groupthink um, showing up the most is in scientists, particularly young scientists, choosing which problems they work on, which things they look at, which things yes. they study, because that is often determined by what's fashionable. Correct. 
Uh, so, you know, I could go back to when I was a senior grad student and all of these models of stringy inflation started coming out mm -hmm. because it was like, that's when the string theorists decided that they had something meaningful to say about cosmic inflation. So there was racetrack inflation and fast roll inflation and inflation with these kinetic terms and all these different models of inflation that added nothing to the field of physical cosmology, but it was popular. Stringy inflation right. got popular. Uh, today, there's an enormous amount of modifications of gravity that occur among people who want to explain dark energy, that they just have all these different models of dynamical dark energy. Mm -hmm. There's no physical motivation for doing this because the data is perfectly consistent with a constant unchanging you know, nature for dark energy, but yeah. this is fashionable. People work on it. A lot of people work only on this. And, you know, I'm not a fan of telling people what they should and shouldn't be working on. Right. I, I might think, oh, you're only working on this because other people have told you this is an interesting thing to work on or your advisor thinks this is an interesting thing to work on. And I don't think it's an interesting thing to work on. But I don't care what I think is interesting or not. Yes. People, when they become scientists, we all have as much free will as anyone else. If you want to go and work on this thing because it's what you're interested in or you think it's lucrative or you think it's going to get you a job or whatever your motivation, that's up to you. Mm -hmm. You have your own opportunities to choose for yourself what you do and what you choose to work on. Here's what I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with, though. You have to realize that to be a theoretical physicist is to be willing to consider your own bad ideas. You're going to have ideas. Yes. Most of the ideas you have, someone else has already had. It's very hard to have a new idea. Right. Second off, most of the ideas that everyone has are bad ideas. They're right. not correct. They don't actually mm -hmm. reflect the universe that's out there. And that's okay. You can be willing to speculate what you can't do. And this is where, where my hackles rise and I come in and I'm like, no, 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 you can't get away with that, is you must not advance your own speculative ideas that have not been established, that haven't been supported by enough of the evidence, that you cannot advance that as being scientifically true or scientifically just as likely as the null hypothesis. The burden of mm -hmm. proof is on the new idea haver. If you have a new idea, you've got three bars you have to clear. One is whatever that prevailing theory that you're trying to replace it with was, you have to, everything that you're saying has to be consistent with that, with everything right. we know previously. So you want to do away with, you know, you want to modify Einstein's theory of relativity to accommodate your new theory of gravity, that's fine, but you better not ruin any of the tests we've already performed on relativity that establish it as correct. So you better be consistent with solar system observations and gravitational lensing and the mm -hmm. expanding universe and all the things we already have at our disposal. Um, 
this is this is kind of that hard line that you have to reproduce all the successes. You have to explain something new that the prevailing theory doesn't explain very well, right? This is where most of these ideas come from is to say like, well, if standard theory predicts this, but we observe this, then, you know, oh, I can introduce some new things like mm -hmm. one new parameter to solve one new unknown. That's where most new ideas right. come from. But you have to go further than that, too. You also have to say, if my idea is correct, what else can I go that I haven't already observed and mm -hmm. look for that will tell my idea apart from the prevailing idea? And unless you can meet all three of those steps, reproduce all the successes of the current model, explain what the current model can't but your new model can, and make a new prediction for something else that should occur that we haven't seen yet, and then go out and measure it and see if your new theory or the old theory is right. Unless you can clear all three of those steps, you're not going to become established science. You're not going to become the new consensus because you don't have that evidence that you need to clear those bars. That's it. It's not very hard and it shouldn't be controversial, but I, I feel like I'm a pariah for saying like, you, you have to meet these basic criteria. Right. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you you moved in the direction you did when you when you were talking because it's it's like we're on the same wave function here. Um, I wanted to discuss exactly what you're saying and relate it to funding because one of the the other aspects uh, that I tend to think is that the problem that you mentioned exists that people tend to work on hot science, but I also think that, that there's a problem that followed that and is maybe even more damaging, and it's that the hot science is what gets funded. And so if an idea that is wrong, for example, like, uh, you know, there could there's any number of uh, in fact, most ideas being uh, sort of pursued by modern day science are likely wrong in some aspect, because that's the nature of science. That's not to say they're garbage. It's to say that this is an iterative method and, and some are wrong. Some are outright wrong. Some are tiny bit wrong. And, you know, some might even be maybe there's a theory of everything out there that someone's working on in a lab somewhere in Berlin or something that I don't know about. Um, but anyway, I, I feel that this, what we're talking about right now is made worse by the way in which we do funding. Because if you could imagine that, that Avi Loeb was sitting on a board where he's deciding what gets funded in terms of telescopes. And like if he was like the head of the board of directors of the decadal <laughs> survey that's occurring yes, right now, like just, just what if, right? Yes. Right. Of course. What if, um. Yeah, for people who don't know, um, that what if is maybe too real. Uh, then he has a say in what does and doesn't get funded. And so if something doesn't meet his ideas of the universe, um, you know, and he's sort of a martyr for this idea because I don't think he's he's alone in that. I think that you could have people out there who who are, you know, have spent their careers working on string theory and believe string theory to be the epitome of, of everything that is correct in the universe. And be sitting on a funding uh, a board somewhere, deciding what projects do and don't get funded, and deciding that that projects that would potentially come up with theories that throw away string theory are maybe not worth funding because string theory is or it's working, it's right, it's et cetera, even though there are many, many, many flaws in it. And so, do we do a good enough job of funding new experimental? Out of the sort of zeitgeist of modern day science, do we do enough a good enough job of funding those ideas, getting money to those ideas? Um, what do you think? I mean, I don't think the way we fund science 
on planet Earth in 2021 is responsible in most ways, which is to say, I don't think we invest enough of our collective resources in science, period. I agree. A thousand percent. Um, yes. And so what we have created because of that problem is a system where only things that excite the right, uh, I'll say, that pluck the right strings inside certain people's hearts mm -hmm. uh, is why we have any funding at all. Right. Um, so um, I think it's very important to not come down harshly on people who are studying things that you or I might not think are particularly interesting. Because I think that when someone becomes a scientist and says, this is what my career is, um, I here's what I want to work on, I'm going to do that. Yeah, look, a lot of times having to, you know, getting swept up in a large collaboration is maybe the easiest way to get a job. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you a personal story. I was a postdoc at the University of Arizona working for someone on SDSS, mm -hmm. with Sloan Digital Sky Survey data. And I knew right away, like, oh, if I want to be a successful physicist, I could just get in good with this collaboration and do this same type of work. And, you know, look, when I was there, we knew the dark energy equation of state W was mm -hmm. minus one to plus or minus 30% or so. Right. And I knew if I worked on SDSS for the next, you know, five years, 10 years, something like that, maybe we could get that down from 30% to about 12% or 10% or 8%. It's still going to be minus one because yeah. I don't have any reason to believe it's going to be anything else other than that because I know enough physical cosmology that I know enough to make a judgment for myself mm -hmm. about what's motivated, what's ill-motivated, what's, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, no, it's, it, they, these go in increments of one third. If it's not minus two thirds and it's not minus four thirds, it's going to be minus one. Anyway, you can tweak that. You can break that. You can make a theoretical innovation or new field or quintessence or whatever to change that. But mm -hmm. I didn't think those were particularly likely. And I couldn't see myself giving my life, my career, my time, my energy towards an endeavor where I didn't feel like the outcome was very exciting. There were a lot of things I would have preferred to work on, uh, but there wasn't like a whole slew of people lining up to fund me working on that other stuff. This mm -hmm. is what the limited funding is for. I would say if we wanted to change that culture, uh, the way that starts is to value what scientists would choose to do if left to their own devices. To say, this is a career you can have where you follow your own passions, your own intuitions, your own knowledge. You publish what you want. You publish when you want. Mm -hmm. But we have this sort of publish or perish thing. We have this where we're trying to like saber metrics our scientists and, oh, who has the highest impact factor? What journals yeah. have the best H index? What, mm -hmm. you know, you want to gamify science like this then what that's going to reward is the same thing gamification always rewards is the people who succeed at your game, not the people who are doing necessarily the best science. And so that is 
what we're forced to resort to relying on is, look, over time, we're going to build up the evidence and the evidence is either going to point to these ideas being correct or these ideas being incorrect. And that's really all we're going to be able to say. Um, we are. I don't think we're necessarily doing science right. Uh, in terms of who we fund or how we fund it. But I mm. think the biggest problem is that we don't fund enough of it. We don't fund enough types of science. Yeah. We don't value particularly the experimental or observational uh, mm -hmm. results we have. And we sort of glorify uh, sort of many theoretical ideas that we don't have the capability of testing right now. I'm not against that type of theorizing. I am against that being what the public hears of as this is what science is, because most of what science is, is not that. It's not string theorists getting funded. It's, mm -hmm. you know, much, much, much more of science is about, you know, if you go the particle physics route, it's about scientists working on these large collaborations, trying to all pool their resources to measure the cross sections of things, discover new particles, discover how they behave, discover decay pathways and ratios and CP violation and, and all of these interesting things in astronomy. It's not like, oh, we're all out there not looking for aliens. No, astronomers are working in a vast vast array of things, collecting data, figuring mm -hmm. out how the universe works, what it's made of, how it's interacting, how things evolve with time. And it's not just SETI where we're looking for alien signatures. We're looking for them in terms of the chemistry that they're producing here on worlds in our solar system. Are there biosignatures? Is there right. a past history of life? We're also looking around exoplanets, right? Planetary mm -hmm. astronomy is alive and well, looking for biosignatures or bio hints, looking forward to directly imaging Earth-sized exoplanets around other stars. Like we're, we're actively pursuing these things, but the way we're actively pursuing them in a meaningful way is in that in those realms where we can meet those three hurdles I talked about, where we can differentiate what would a natural inorganic signature look like versus a life-based organic signature, mm -hmm. where we can tell those apart with observations that we can either make today or on the near horizon. That's That's to me where where these frontiers really get interesting, not in speculating about, you know, oh, well, if aliens made a light sail, then they would make it like this, because this is how I would make right. it. And then it would look like this, because that's what we saw. And that's a way I could fit the date. That's not a prediction. Yes, get out of here. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, very much. I, I don't I think that science in general, funding opportunities in general, um, no longer realistically try to pursue risky investments. Um, if you look at, I, I talked to Ray Weiss on the show and we talked about LIGO and how much of a gamble it was for the NSF when it was initially funded back in the early nineties, when it was initially given its first pool of money and it didn't produce a result for 20 years based off of when that first check got written. Um, I feel that we're not doing enough of that. We're not doing enough of giving money to well-suited ideas that are potentially risky. That, you know, Einstein said, you know, uh, there's this famous quote by the, the NSF director at the time, 
that he said to Ray Weiss. And it was something along the lines of um, something along the lines of you're asking me to give you, you know, a billion dollars for something that may not even exist. And the resounding answer to that is, yes, it's exactly what I'm asking you to do, because that is what we should be doing in science. We should be saying, here's a well-suited idea I have. Give me money to pursue it, please. Don't give me money to put an extra decimal point on an observation. Give me money to make a new observation. And I think we lost that. Not lost it. Not lost it. Not, I was trying to put a catchy tagline in the end of my, my statement. We didn't lose I it, mean, of course, but it's going. Let me, let me ask you this. We, we live in a country where our GDP is, what, somewhere around $20 trillion a year? That's the gross domestic product of the United yeah. States, more or less. So you, you can check that anyway. I, the number's not important. How much money would you think is a reasonable amount to say the budget of the National Science Foundation should be? What, what, what would you say is like, this is how much we should fund? Because that's what the National Science Foundation does, is they fund science. They, they fund the operation and construction of the telescopes we have in the United States. They fund uh, public education like PBS. They fund, uh, you know, they fund many of the uh, high energy physics projects that we have, uh, like what would you say is a good amount that would be a healthy budget to give the NSF to say promote science in this country? Uh, excellent question. I don't. How much do we get now? What is the? That's that's why I wanted you to give me a number because I think you would be shocked and appalled to learn that the NSF's entire annual budget. I think it's like all of its operations is single digits billions of dollars. I, oh, I was going to guess 20 billion was the amount of single the digit. Got. I think it's yeah. about 7 or 8. Yeah, so it should obviously be an order of magnitude I, higher. I mean, this is this is it. We're saying like no, no, no. If you it's too much if you say how much of GDP should go to the NSF, we're saying right now, you know, 0.05% is too much. It right. should be lower than that. That's where we are right now. So when you're like, you know, hey, I want a billion dollars from the NSF, if you want a billion dollars a year from the NSF, that's more than 10% of their budget. Right. So this is asking for a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm not yeah, I'm not blaming the NSF for the lack of funding. And I don't blame them for choosing to put decimal points as opposed to giving us 10% of their money for some detecting something that might not be there. Um I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily their fault. Um, I think it is an over yeah, – this is kind of what all of society does, uh, I feel like, lately, but it's probably been forever, and I've only been alive lately, is uh, we point fingers at at the other people that are getting the money, and um, and we blame them for the, the problems when, in fact, the money should just be, uh, uh, I guess, multiplied. Um, if that, yeah, I mean it's yeah. the old story about uh, you know the, uh, the CEO and – a union worker and a non-union worker, uh, they get a dozen cookies. Mm -hmm. And the CEO takes 11 cookies and leaves one on the table and elbows the non-union guy and says, the union guy wants your cookie. Right. Of course. Yes. And that's oh, what we're doing. Yes. That's what we're doing. Yes. Like, 
yeah, sure. Go ahead, attack string theorist. I'm no super fan of string theory. Go ahead, attack them. What's that going to gain you? Right. You're going to destroy a scientific field that hasn't produced a lot of results. What do you think is going to happen? You think that money is magically going to go to other scientists? No, it's going to go away. It's just yeah. not going to go to string theory. You want to advocate for increasing funding to good things? Advocate for that. Don't advocate for taking away from someone else who's doing a thing that you don't particularly care about. There's plenty of things that are good science or who cares if they're good science or not they're what the field is establishing as this is what we think we should be pursuing right. i'm not in that field i why why should i tell other people how to do their job or what their job should even be that that i feel is a huge problem we have is that we as a society often don't value contributions that we don't understand or have an interest in yeah of um, course why why demean the good work someone else does or another field does rather than just advocate for hey this is a worthy endeavor. We should be increasing funding to this. This is important. We should be increasing funding to this. That, that I feel like is a smarter way to advocate for society investing in sciences. We should be looking at what should we be doing right? Let's do more of that. Yeah. We, we have this myth that it's like, oh, there's this finite pie. The, the whole point is the pie that science has right now is, you know, it's like it, it's like an individual chicken pot pie that mm -hmm. has to feed a village. That's the problem. The problem yes. is not, oh, they got a big slice of that pie. The problem is the pie is too small. Yeah. Oh, I, I um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And I think that that's probably a, a good place to, uh, to end our conversation because I'm not sure that we could make a better point than, than that. And I, <laughs> so, um, with that being said, uh, I think we've covered a ton of stuff. It was a great conversation. Great talking to you, Ethan. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And, uh, you know, uh, to all your listeners out there, if I could say, you know, hey, remain curious, but also uh, be aware of and appreciative of all the good things that science has brought to our lives, has brought to our modern world. And remember that if we want to continue to make these big leaps forward in our understanding of the universe and in the applications that technology can glean from science, we need to keep investing in this. We need to keep investing in this basic research, in understanding the universe and in, cover, in uncovering these big truths that you can really only get at by, by having many, many people working on the frontiers to push our understanding forward. Boom, there's the end. <laughs>